Welcome to One Life Online, the podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church, Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a sermon from Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 38, and Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, titled, The Carpenter's Son, presented by Martin Muchoki. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through His Word, by His Spirit, and cause you to walk according to His will, by His grace. We are studying the life of Christ, as most of you are well aware, and we are going about it in a chronological, synthetic manner, and that the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, didn't necessarily write it chronologically, but there is a chronological order you can follow from the time um, from the time Christ came to the time Christ went back to heaven. And that means at certain times there are challenges with getting the text from one particular chapter. And that's why I've asked you to turn to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 27, then Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 6. Very well then, I'm going to start from Matthew 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two men who were blind following him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And after he entered the house, the men who were blind came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the land. And as they were going out, behold, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak, was brought to him, to Jesus. And after the demon was cast out, the man who was previously unable to speak talked. And the crowd were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus was going through um, all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. Seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore plead with the Lord of the harvest send out workers into his harvest. Mark chapter 6. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, 
where did this man learn these things and what is this wisdom that has been given to him? And such miracles as this performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not all his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not dishonored except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could not do any miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people, sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Our gracious Father, open our eyes to behold the beauty of your word. Um, Christ, speak to us through the scriptures. Help us to know you more, to love you deeper, to fellowship with you, to have a hunger and a thirst for you. We pray that you would speak clearly to us and that we would understand your word and that you would prepare our hearts to apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. So Jesus, we are told in verse 27, departed from there, from where, from where we left off last Sunday after he had, um, after he had healed and after he had delivered, after he had raised up the daughter of Jairus from dead. He departed and when he was going, there were some people who followed him. These people had no physical sight. They could not see. They were blind. They were two blind men. And these blind men were crying out to Jesus and telling him, Son of David, have mercy on us. Ever read the Psalms? When you start reading the Psalms, from the first Psalm, going on to the second and the third and the fourth and so on and so forth, we can't say Psalm chapter 1 because Psalm has no chapters. It's just a compilation of Psalms. The one thing that the psalmist always asks for from God is for mercy. Help me according to your mercy. Deliver me according to your mercy. Provide for me according to your mercy. Save me according to your mercy. And so they cry out and they say, Son of David, a messianic title. Whenever someone said Son of David, they were longing for the person to come from the root of David who would deliver them from their sin, who would deliver them from oppression who would set up a messianic kingdom. Now here they are calling him by the right title, the son of David. They are blind men, two blind men, but they have spiritual sight. They can actually see that this is no ordinary man. This is not just a mere prophet contrasted to others who just saw him as just that. And as we'll see later, who will see him as just that. And they continued following Jesus such that when Jesus came in the house, they came to him they came to him, they were in need, they were desperate. We have seen this before with Jairus. He was in need, he was desperate. He didn't care who was around him, he just came and fell down at Jesus' feet. Now these two blind men came to Jesus, they follow him, they have faith in him, and they pursue him all the way into the house. They had a way where they could find their way into the house. And so when they find Jesus, Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? What a question, isn't it? 
their actions of following Jesus, of, of going where Jesus is, demonstrate their faith. But Jesus still poses the question to them. And Jesus poses the question to them, not for Jesus' sake, but for their sake, to reveal their hearts, to try and pull out from their hearts, do they really need to see physically? He wanted them to verbalize their response. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Blindness, who can be able to give sight when someone is blind? Who can be able to restore sight to someone who wants so? Maybe they were not always blind. Maybe they were hit by the blindness at some point in their lives. Maybe they remember the last image they saw before they went blind. Now they cannot be able to see. They cannot be able to drive, so to speak. They cannot be able to see what is right in front of them. It's a bad situation. We value our eyes a lot. That's why if there is a dust storm or something happens all of a sudden, the first place we usually cover is our eyes. Either you close the eyes or you do like this. Most people don't think of their stomach, for example, or their knees. You don't cover your, your nose when there is sudden danger. It's usually your eyes, because you think, if my eyes are gone, I won't be able to see. It's so natural to human beings. Now these two men are unable to see. And Jesus asked them a question, do you believe that I am able to restore your sight? In a way, you can almost hear Jesus asking you the same question. In the situation of your life, which is very desperate, which is very deep, which is very dark. And many times we, we pray, we sing, we sing amazing, beautiful songs. We hear lovely sermons. We read beautiful messages. We even go to God and on our knees and pray to him. We follow him like they followed him all the way into their house. And Jesus poses a question to our heart. Do you believe that I am able to do what you are asking me to do for you? Now you can think of this. I have my own things I can think of. You have yours that you can think of. I mean, the situation that is on your mind now before you came to church, that was on your mind before you came to church, or yesterday, and you are wondering, will Jesus do this? Is he able to do this? Jesus is posing a question to you as he did to this blind man. Do you really believe I am able to do this? At the very foundation of it, if I was to pull out your heart, is there faith enough in me? The way the blind man responded was amazing. They said, yes, Lord. I looked at the good news version. <laughs> it says, yes, sir. And I felt, um, sir seems like Sebo. Eh, Sebo, Wanji Sebo. Something like that, you know? It's, here they say, yes, Lord. It is simple, trusting faith. They did not start giving histories. Our Lord, you know, when I was a child, our Lord, you know, when I went to this place, sometimes it's what we do when the Lord asks us those kinds of questions or excuses. I have tried this, I've tried the other, I've gone to this place, I've gone to such and such a place. Sometimes we have long stories or histories or blaming people. Jesus' question was simple. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, yes, Lord. Then Jesus, verse 29, he touched their eyes. 
And he said, according to your faith, let it be unto you. It's a song that Don Moen has sung that says, according to your word, let it be unto me. Not according to what people say. Not according to what I think. Not according to what I read or I hear. I am, I am laying my hope and my life and my aspirations and my desires and dreams and everything according to your word. Jesus has said it and I believe it and that settles it for me. It is simple, remarkable faith. So, Jesus touched their eyes. Do you remember Jairus? Jairus asked Jesus, please come and touch my daughter. Remember the woman with an issue of blood? She went to touch Jesus, Jesus' garment. Remember the daughter who died? It was Jesus who touched that girl and brought her back to life. Can you see all these three different ways of touching Jesus or being touched by Jesus? One is where Jesus touches you, you didn't even ask for it. The other one, you actually long for it, you do it yourself. The other one, you have no power to do it. The girl was dead. Sometimes Jesus touched, sometimes people touched him, sometimes Jesus healed according to the person's faith. Sometimes faith was not even involved, like we will see with the demon-possessed man. It was actually other people who brought these people to Jesus. Only Jesus' mercy was involved. So Jesus touched the two blind men. He touches, you know, and his touch brings a transformation and a renewal. And if you are here today, you are feeling, oh yes, I am downcast, oh yes, I am depressed, oh yes, I'm in disaster, oh yes, this is too big for me. And you say, I, I, I came here saying I need a touch from Jesus. Well, you came to the right place. Jesus touches and, and saves and heals and forgives. He delivers. He heals. He restores. Has he ever touched you, spiritually speaking, physically speaking even? Do you need his touch? This man received his touch, and their eyes were opened. And Jesus now warns them and tells them, whatever has happened, don't go and tell anyone. I read one version which says, and they noised abroad this thing. Here they say, it says, they spread the news about him in all that country. They disobeyed the instructions of the master. They spread the news. You know, maybe you think, but these were blind men. Surely everyone in the society knows that they are blind, and if they are healed, it will become a phenomenon, a national phenomenon. But, but not clearly the words of verse 31. They spread the news. It is not as if they were asked, hey, you guys, you people are blind. What happened? No, they actually spread the news. And it's not bad to do that, but... Looking, for example, in Mark chapter 1, which we have looked at, after the leper's healing, what happened when they went everywhere talking about what Jesus had done? Jesus could no more do miracles in that place. He could not even live in that place. He had to resort to solitary places. His point was not fame or to be known. He didn't want to bring this tension between him and the Pharisees to a crescendo. Not at this point anyway. He was building up to the cross. So anyway, after, as they went out, verse 32, 
they brought to him a man. The man did not come. Jesus did not find the man. The man was just brought to him. And this did not even ask for deliverance. The aspect of faith is missing, yet he was delivered. The man was mute. He could not speak. Maybe the demon that had possessed him, oppressed him, had caused him to be mute. And he was unable to speak. And a lot, not a lot of information is supplied for us. We read in verse 33 that when the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the multitude marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. This was their reaction. We have never seen anything like this. This is beyond our comprehension, beyond our experience, beyond our understanding. The Englishman would say they were flabbergasted. I don't even know what that word means, but it usually sounds like a good word to say at a point like this in the preaching. It was never seen like this in Kampala, in Uganda, in Israel. That was their reaction. These were older men, younger men, younger women, younger, older women. They had never experienced anything like this. And they, they knew this is special, this is unique, this is supernatural, this is only the work of God. But the Pharisees, verse 34, they said, oh, this man is only casting out demons by the power of the demons. We have seen this before, haven't we? In Mark chapter 12, in Mark chapter, sorry, in Matthew chapter 12 and in Mark chapter 3. He's only casting out demons by the power of Belzebul. This was the reaction of the religious leaders of the day. And you know theirs, theirs was a deliberate ignorance. It was a willful rejection of the Savior. Surely they knew. No one else was doing what Jesus was doing. It was unique. They knew in their hearts it was true. But a willful rejection, a deliberate ignorance. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus warned them against that sin. Do you remember the sin? We looked, about it. We looked at it. If you weren't here, when you looked at the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin, as some call it, uh, go to our YouTube channel, One Life Church Kampala, and you will find a sermon there. Attributing God's work to Satan is what the Pharisees do. They say Jesus is actually a demon. He's actually Satan. He's actually the devil. So Jesus never answered them. But instead... Mark chapter 6, Jesus went out from there and came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. A disciple is a follower, a learner. And they followed Jesus. You know, several times when Jesus was rejected, he left. This time he left and went to his own hometown. And he went with his followers. Now, you've seen the fame of Jesus as we have looked at the life of Christ, right? Crowds followed him. We saw last Sunday they thronged him. They pressed about him. At a certain point, he was almost stampeded upon. He couldn't just stand with the crowd and preach. They had brought him so many people to deliver and to save and to heal. He had to design a floating pulpit and preach just next to the Sea of Galilee, to the waters of the Sea of Galilee, rather. So many people were following him. He was famous. What do you expect if he goes to his own home country? After, after the marvelous teaching about the sign of Jonah and the unpardonable sin and the parables of the kingdom, 
After the miraculous healing and deliverance, calming the storm, the gathering demoniacs, um, the Jairus' daughters being brought back to life, the woman with the issue of blood, the blind men, the demon-possessed men that we have looked at now, after his mighty preaching, you know he went for, so far he has done two preaching tours in Galilee. The most famous sermon from that is the Sermon on the Mount. His ministry fame throughout Galilee and Judea and Samaria. After all of these things, what do you expect if he goes to his own hometown? This is what you expect. A packed stadium, right? A field auditorium. You expect people have, have cooked for him and, and waited for him. Yes, our homeboy is coming back home. How do you feel when Chapter Gay has broken the record of 10,000 meters in a foreign country and the Ugandan flag has been raised up high and everyone is singing the Ugandan national anthem? All Uganda wants to go to the Uganda National uh, International Airport, right? And receive Chapter Gay. Ah, uh, no. He comes back alone, right? Maybe just a few people are paid, his family is there. It's what happens, unfortunately, when, even in real life, when, when hometown heroes, when sports personality who achieve a lot outside there, they come back home. And even when they go back to their own village, people feel, ah, uh, this is chapter gay. This guy, see, we fed this guy. See, he brought milk to us. So we saw him running around here. So he's in his hometown. The Sabbath comes, as usual. He goes to the synagogue, just as Paul did. And he starts to teach. And many hearing him, they were, mark this, verse 2, Mark chapter 6, they were astonished. Your version may say they were amazed. That sounds a bit better. Amazed may have a positive understanding to it. They were astonished. They were shocked. They were offended. They were, they were bewildered. They were put out of their wits. And they questioned Jesus. They questioned three things about Jesus. Look at them in verse 2 of Mark, Mark chapter 6. They questioned his word. Where did this man learn these things? They just saw him as a mere man. This is just, as I said, a guy. That word usually sounds so casual, doesn't it? When someone says, oh, there was a guy who came from such and such a place. You feel like you're just an ordinary, common person. He was just a guy. So they questioned his, his, his word. They questioned his wisdom. What is this wisdom that has been given to him? It's not even his wisdom. Someone gave him this wisdom. They questioned his wonders. So even such mighty works are performed by his hands. I know. <laughs> not this guy, not this man. They questioned his message. They questioned his mind. They questioned his miracles. Even today, to some people, Jesus is just a mere man who existed, who was given some knowledge by somebody somewhere, and who just went around doing some good. He's not God. He's not a deliverer. 
Some people say this is a sin of familiarity. Just a familiarity with Jesus. He becomes just like any other man you meet outside there. Look at the way they look at the the way they thought about him in verse three. Is not this the carpenter? In fact, five things. Is not this the carpenter, number one? Number two, and this is recorded by Matthew, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this the son of Mary, number three? Are not his brothers here with us, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Do you not know all his sisters? That was all he was to them, a carpenter, son of a carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter. And according to the Jewish beliefs, the father was supposed to teach the child, the son, the trade in which he himself does. So if Joseph was a carpenter, taught his son carpentry. In fact, the saying then was, whoever is not teaching his son a trade is raising up a thief. He was the son of Mary, is what is all they know about him. Perhaps at this time Joseph was dead, we don't know. When Mary came to look for Jesus in uh, Matthew and chapter 12, and he came with the brothers, Joseph was not there. So you wonder, where is Joseph? At some point, Joseph disappears. You know, Joseph was a quiet man, according to what we can read when you look at the scriptures. He did not even, when, when he realized Mary was pregnant, he did not want to publicly condemn Mary. He just wanted the whole matter to be dealt with quietly. He was one of those people who, who don't have a lot to say. Yet he obeyed God and he loved Jesus. When Jesus was lost in Jerusalem, he went to frantically look for him. We can learn many lessons from the scriptures concerning the silence of, of Joseph. Not much is said about him. You know, I, I admire quiet people. Quieter people. <laughs> people who are silent, who take a few minutes to think before they speak. People who, who listen. We tend to admire what we don't have. So yes, clearly I don't have that. I'm not a good listener, I try. But I am a poor listener, you know that. If, you, if you're not so clever now, I have told you. But there are some people who are just quiet. They know how to listen. They are silent. They almost know what to say at the right time. Some of those people just, they listen to you for five minutes, then they speak five words. And you feel their five words carry more weight than your 5,000 words in five minutes. But then it's a personality issue, right? I can't resist it. <laughs> and those of you who are extroverts rather than introverts or who talk more rather than listen more, know the struggle. Maybe the other side would tell me the same. I wish I could talk more. I wish I could express myself more. But <laughs> I just can't, I just freeze. 
perhaps Joseph was dead, so that's why they refer to him as the son of Mary. More likely, though, I don't believe that was not why they referred to him as the son of Mary. I think it was out of disdain, out of contempt, out of the feeling, uh, this, this, this boy, this is an illegitimate child. He was not the son of Joseph, biologically. And going by the text that we are reading in Mark chapter 6, they think, an illegitimate child. They expressed contempt and disdain at him, the son of Mary. The culture then would require you to address a child, a boy especially, as the son of the father. About this, this, this boy. You know how much contemptuous it was, of a disdain it was? There's a word in English that begins with B and A, but which I cannot utter, but which means an illegitimate child. Today it is derogatory. This is the weight of how they referred to Jesus. And his brothers, we know them, and his sisters. And all these things that they are saying, these things are true about who Jesus was. His occupation, his family status, his trade. But it is the contempt with which they are saying it with. That was all Jesus was to them. Listen, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? If someone asks you, who is Jesus? Only you can answer that question. Maybe I can give you a few pointers to check your answer. How much time do you spend with him regularly, daily, in prayer, in meditation, and in the word? Just, just a way to check. The people who we love, we want to spend time with them, right? Just naturally, we want to be with them. I was at a pastor's workshop from Tuesday to Friday of this week. A few of the pastors, as we were with them there, including myself, by the time it was Thursday evening, we were like, oh, we actually done. We have missed my wife. And when I get home, we didn't even talk a lot with my wife, just, just seeing Victoria after so many days and just spending time with her and not sleeping on a bed alone. You love someone, you want to be with them. Who is Jesus to you? Another way to check, who is the first person, which is the first place you go to when you are in need? When was the last time your prayers had no supplication or intercession or petition? You just went to God and praised him and adored him and gave thanks to him. You did not ask anything. You did not ask even anything spiritual. You just woke up and you praised and you adored and you gave thanks to God. Who is Jesus to you? What is your greatest treasure? Where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. Who is Jesus to you? If someone meets you in public and says, Hey, Martin, praise the Lord. Do I feel, ah, Amen, Amen. Or do I feel, Amen, I'm not ashamed of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Hallelujah, God is good. They are pointers. I'm not saying that you do these things or you don't, and I'm not pointing a finger at you or condemning you. They're just pointers to ask, to answer the question, who is Jesus to you? So they were offended at him, we read in verse 3. The word offend there is the word scandalized. They were scandalized. 
by who he was. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house, in his own country. He was famous everywhere, not by choice. He was rejected in his home area. And maybe you can hear someone there referring to this carpenter. By there, there is a table you made for me. Maybe Jesus arrived in Nazareth and there was, there was actually a table. It's not, it's not symmetrical. It is not firm. The chair that I sit on needs something to be repaired. Among his relatives, where we looked at in Mark chapter 3, sometime before Jesus thought about the unpardonable sin, his relatives had actually come to lay hold of Jesus because the Bible tells us they thought he was mad. But the people who Jesus was preaching and teaching to, they were, they were listening to his every word and they were following him everywhere he's going. That's why he says, my family is not my mother, my brother, my sister. My family is anyone who does the will of God. What a privilege that you who are not a person one day, you who had not received mercy one day, we who are not a people someday had not obtained mercy, have now obtained mercy. We are now the children of God, adopted into his family, called to be his own children, his peculiar people, his treasure, headed to heaven, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine that? Think about that the next time you're on a border, the next time you're driving your vehicle, the next time you're in traffic, you are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. This is who you are right now. Not tomorrow, not in the future, not in eternity. Now is who you are. You are his own child. Jesus delights in that. God says, that is my child. That is my son. That is my daughter. He has laid his hedge of protection around you and his covering is around your very life. What a special, special privilege. But the reality often is that people are treated well by outsiders and they are looked down by their own people. Even some of you may have felt that. You go among your family members and everyone looks down on you. You go back to your home village and everyone looks down on you. You come to Kampala, you work somewhere in an office, you have helped and supported so many people, you are a missionary, you are a gospel evangelist. You have done so much by God's grace, you're not boasting. People really honor you because of your service to the Lord and your years and, and so on and so forth. Then you go back to your home area, your village. Ah, this is just James or Judas or Simon. Ah, we changed this man's diapers. Today we have, we have Bibles, right? There are places where people have no free access to Bibles. Today we don't, we don't even cherish them. Maybe yours is gathering dust at home. Maybe you don't remember the last time you opened your Bible and your own Bible and read it and just went through the pages of Scripture. Yet people died, people were killed, and these are hundreds of thousands of people so that we can have it in our hands. So that we can hold it today. But here we are in Kampala with a hundred versions of the Bible. <laughs> but not cherished. Or places where people cannot freely worship. They long to be gathered like this. And it's often the case 
in so many ways, even when it comes to evangelizing to family. Have you ever realized how hard that is to go and tell your brothers and your sisters the gospel, your parents, your aunties, your uncles? Some of them will put you in the right place. By the time you were saved, I was 40 years old. What are you telling me? So he could not do any mighty work there because of the unbelief, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. The sin was the sin of unbelief, which we are warned against in Hebrews chapter 3. Be careful that none of you has a sinful heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God. It's a serious sin. Normally the sins that are more visible are the ones which think are more serious, like stealing or killing or adultery and so on. But the unbelief, the Bible treats it very, very strongly. Jesus could do no mighty work there because of the unbelief. Just like he laid hands on a few people and left. As if he was just on his way out and there were a few people and he just laid hands on them as he's walking out. They had no faith at all in him. Contrast that to the many who trusted Jesus wherever he was away from his hometown. Now here he was, dejected, rejected, ejected, jested, and any other word that can rhyme with those. And he marveled because of the unbelief, so he left and went to other cities and villages. So, in summary, we have blind men who could see. All right? And we have seeing people who are blind. The blind men had no physical sight, but they had spiritual sight. The people of Nazareth had physical sight, but they had no spiritual sight. The blind men who could see were calling out to Jesus, but the seeing people who were blind were questioning Jesus. The blind men were asking for mercy. The people who saw were asking, who are you, by the way? The blind men recognized Jesus as Messiah. The people who could see the Nazarenes only recognized Jesus by his trade and his family. The blind men had faith in Jesus, but the people who could see had no faith in Jesus only unbelief. The blind men embraced Jesus, but the people who could see were offended by Jesus. The blind men experienced Jesus miraculously, but the people who could see, not many miracles were done there. The blind men were commended by Jesus, but the people who could see were condemned by their rejection of Jesus. They are condemned. So Jesus left, as he usually does when he is rejected somewhere. He leaves. He will tell his disciples, and we will see this next week, but one, or early March, when you go to preach and evangelize and they reject you, just shake the dust off your feet and leave. If they want to kill you, don't stay there and wait for them to kill you. The point is not death. The point is to spread the gospel. Do not give what is valuable to dogs, what is sacred to pigs. They will turn again and rend you 
If these people see, but they have refused to understand, they hear, but they have refused to comprehend, leave them. So Jesus leaves them. Then he goes about all the cities and villages, teaching and preaching the gospel. And we shall see that next Sunday, God willing. Our gracious and eternal Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. Help us to cherish it and to treasure it. We thank you for the living word, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Jesus, who restored sight to the two blind men. Jesus, who set free the demon-possessed man who was brought to him. We thank you that you are a God who sets free, who heals, and who delivers. We thank you for your compassion and for your mercy. We thank you that there are times we don't even know that we need your touch. But yet, by your grace, you touch us. We thank you there is a time we reach out to touch to you, and you are close to us, and you help us, and you guide us, and you deliver us, and you give us wisdom. There are times when it is other people who pray on our behalf, and they say, oh, Jesus, touch so-and-so, help so-and-so, lay your hands on so-and-so, spiritually speaking. And even those times, you are compassionate and gracious to do that. These are not mere stories of people who lived almost 2,000 years ago. This is a reality for us who are seated here. And many of us can testify, Jesus has touched my life. And I'm not taking that word trivially or casually. I know it in my heart. I felt it in my body like the woman who had an issue of blood. I know that Jesus has touched me. I know that Jesus has healed me. I know that he has delivered me. I know that he has given me life. I know it. And the greatest touch that we can ever receive from you is what we sang a few minutes ago about all sufficient merit. That one day we were blind, we were lost. Your word tells us we were dead in trespasses and sins. But you found us. But you delivered us from our wickedness. We who are wretched, you gave us life. And we are seated here, not as living corpses, but alive with Christ Jesus. We have been translated from death and we have been brought to life. We have been moved from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. We have been moved from darkness into light. And we thank you for this miracle that you have done for us by saving us who are dead and giving us life. Jesus, we have seen the many miracles you've done over the past few weeks. And I pray for some who are listening to me or who are seated here today. And they say, Jesus, I need a miracle from you. Not mere provision, not just your acts of providence. I need something supernatural, extraordinary. This situation is impossible with whoever it is. It is impossible with me. It is absolutely impossible. I know it. And I need you to do a miracle in my life. Father, I pray that you would hear their prayers and that you would help them and that you would answer them in accordance to your will and your word. We believe in a historical Jesus who did miracles. We believe in a real Jesus in our hearts who does miracles. And we take 
that to be the case because of his grace and his mercy. As we continue looking at your life, O Christ, reveal who you are to us. Help us to unlearn, help us to relearn, and help us to learn. Help us to walk with a freshness, in a freshness of life, never the same again, being moved from glory to greater glory through your spirit, by your word, for the glory of your name, the conviction of the sinner, the edification of your church, and the salvation of souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to God's Word today. Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705-581-369 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at One Life Church and subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission. Thank you.